0: This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Ruman Alam actually is the one who turned me on to Helen Garner's novels. And I'm really excited to say Pantheon is republishing a couple of the early novels and a nonfiction book. We're going to talk about one of the novels in the nonfiction in this conversation. But Helen, it's such a treat to finally meet you. I mean, Roman has been talking about you for a really long time. And I even bought a used copy of the (laughs) children's book before I got the new one from Pantheon. So I just want to say (laughs) I have both now. As booksellers, we have multiple copies of things, but it's really nice to see you. Thank you so much for making the time. So I have a question for you, though, before we really get going. You're on the road in the United States. And is this the first time you've done like a really big tour? I've never done I'm exhausted to tell you that.
1: It's, it's such, a, such a huge flight to get here, like 25 hours. It is. And it takes days to get over. But but I'm having a wonderful time. People yeah. are so kind to me and mm-hmm. I'm enjoying it very much.
0: I'm really happy to hear that. When Ruman told me about the children's Bach, and he did that thing that he does also in the introduction to the children's book where he says, I'm not going to tell you what it's about. I'm just going to say you need to read this book. And I listen to Ruman when it comes to things like this. And I will just say, as I was reading this tiny, thin novel, it's very tautly written. It's small, isn't it? It's really great. It's so satisfying. It's the early 80s. We're in Australia, but we could be anywhere. Married couple, two young children. College friend of the husband shows up with her younger sister in tow. And then we also meet her sort of paramour who's, well, he's Philip. So we've got Dexter, Athena, the two boys. Elizabeth, Vicky, uh, Philip, and then he has an adolescent daughter, Poppy, who is really kind of not having it with anyone. It's a really tight cast. Things happen. I would like to not spoil the things for people who have not yet read this book, because you do a lot of very cool stuff in this book. But it made me think of Paula Fox and Desperate Characters. As I was reading, I was like, oh, okay. I see sort of the marriage malaise. I mean, I think we're not really giving anything away there, but the marriage malaise and the way you're sort of talking about how Dexter sees the world and how Athena sees the world and Elizabeth and Phil, all of the adults are a little akimbo in their way of seeing things. But with the children's book, you wrote it in the early 80s, correct? It came out in, what, 84, I think.
1: So I wrote it in the early 80s,
0: yeah. So you'd been working as a freelance journalist at that point. Monkey's Grip had come out in 77, so you'd had a novel behind you. And then my understanding is there was a novel in between that you were kind of like, well, it didn't really work, but it taught me how to write. Well, yeah, I published Monkey Grip, and then I went to France for I was away
1: for about 18 months, and I never thrived outside of Australia, I have to say. But anyway, while I was there, I thought, wow, Monkey Grip, that's been quite successful. I'll just do you know more of the same. And you can't do that. You know, I, that's how I, do. I learned that you can't do that. I cobbled together what I thought was a... A novel, and I showed it to my publisher, and they said, "Hell, this is terrible. It's oh. really bad." So I mean, you—they yeah, really hit me with it, and uh, I, I, I sort of cringed away. And I thought, "Well, there's some stuff in it that seems quite good." So I, t- I broke it into pieces and kept two right. stories, and just chucked away the rest. And uh, it's not really the high point of my life's experience. <laughs> the thing I learned was you can't write the same book twice. Right. So right. that's a good thing to learn because you can waste a lot of time. Trying to follow something that's worked, and it's not going to work again. So I messed around with that for I don't know a year or so, and came out. Nobody liked it much. Correctly, and then I not something happened. Um, then I then I wrote this one, the Children's Bark, and I'm always saying this to people that I sort of can't believe that I wrote it. I, I just don't know. I mean, I look at it now, and I see it's got certain. It shows certain skills and competence and I don't know where I got them from because I certainly didn't have them when I was writing monkey work. Yeah, it was quite a strange experience and it's it's short and as you say, it's kind of compact.
0: It's very, it's really, it flies. The book really yeah,
1: well, flies. I think it's only, think it's only about 35,000 words, maybe 37,000. It's very short but, but it's got some kind of, you know, it's sort of substantial. I look at it in amazement. Mm-hmm. I think, how? how did I write that book? It's the only novel, real novel that I've written, you know, that hangs together like a novel and, you know, it looks like a novel and it smells like a novel and it is a novel.
0: Okay. I mean, having read Monkey Grip, I can say, I, Monkey Grip, I should also mention for people who haven't read it yet. I mean, do we want to call it autofiction? I mean, it's very closely yeah, we, pulled you from your own, own life. You
1: call but... it whatever they like. You know, I, used to get, I went around for years defensively saying, oh, how dare you suggest, I just published my diary, but you know, it's based on it's based on a lot of uh, experiences that I had. yeah, and um, you know I don't mind saying that. So it's loose. it's very loose textured.
0: Loose textured, but your prose in the children's book is much more mature. Yeah, and I was actually going to I was going to describe it as looser than what I read in Monkey Grip because I just I felt like you were more confident telling these stories and letting your characters collide. And letting things go where they were. Because, again, I didn't feel like I needed to know that I was in a suburb of Melbourne in 1984 or so. Oh, thanks. I'm glad. You I, that? I just, I liked the sort of universality of it. I mean, it could have been, you know, Westchester County, New York. It could have been Marin County, California. It it just had this sort of timelessness and familiarity in a good way. I was just like, okay.
1: Oh, thanks. Um... That makes
0: me happy to hear that. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I'm glad, to, I'm glad to know that. But, you know, Dexter's sort of figuring out where he is. He's a little stodgy. He's a little set mm. in his ways. He's kind of very old for a young man. Mm. His wife has always been married. They do have some stress. One of their children, I, he doesn't have a diagnosis in the book, but it sounds like he has some sort of delay. He's. Oh, I think well,
1: to, just to be blunt, yeah, yeah. I think he's autistic. Okay. Uh, because back at the time when I wrote that book, uh, the word autism wasn't in current use. Nobody knew what to call these children who were profoundly not cutting it, you know, in, the, in their developmental stages. But I, I didn't, it didn't occur to me to, to name his condition because I didn't know what it was. I didn't know it had
0: a name. But I do think it gives readers space to sort of interpret where Dexter and Athena are. Yeah. And... You know, it's sort of hinted that Dexter had had a crush on Elizabeth, this former classmate, and she sort of pops up. It's very nicely done, the way you have the meeting at the airport. There were reviews that I saw where people had said, oh, well, look at all this domestic drama that she's writing about. And yet anyone who reads the children's book knows there's a lot of social commentary in this book, and there's a lot of political commentary in this book. And it's delightful. It's really, I mean, any book that thinks marriage is maybe not the answer for everyone is... Pretty okay in my book, because Haven't we should seen, have options. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. should have options about this marriage thing. But when you sat down to write the children's book, you of course you have all of this past experience publishing, but in terms of the story and in terms of these characters, how did this book start for you? I had an
1: old friend who was in a very solid marriage, mm-hmm. and we had a child who had... The sort of symptoms and disorders that this little boy Billy has in the book. I was terribly moved by the spectacle of a family that's had this this trouble sort of sold out to them, and um, a deep trouble, and a child that obviously isn't going to grow up in a normal way. And I I was moved by their resolution. To incorporate the child in, in, into their lives in a, you know, the best, warmest way they could, and I, I don't know. I just thought, I wonder, that's a very strong uh, family unit. I thought, I wonder what would happen if, if somebody from the other sort of world that I know sort of crashed into that little world. What what would happen? There's this character called Philip who reoccurs lots of times in my, in my work, and he's a kind of an archetypal figure. He's not based on one person. But he's one of those guys who a really kind of sexy rock and roll sort of guy uh, with a rather loose um, moral fibre uh, and terribly charming and um, good-looking and funny, and everyone immediately adores him and not someone you could ever depend upon. Right. He's the sort of guy who would crash in and out of your life and it would be a lot of fun, but it would end poorly. And so I, I just wonder what if a guy like that turns up? What would happen? To, to a family unit that was right. so bound by both love and duty to the, to the child. So I just chucked them all together and tried to see what happened.
0: There were a couple of things I thought I saw coming that didn't happen and then a couple of things that I was like, oh, yeah. I mean, I, it is really just emotionally satisfying. I believed that these people would make these decisions and do these things as they played out, and you just you don't waste words when you're doing it. It's, there is not an extra comma. There's not an extra ad, There is. It's really spare. You've kept diaries for a really long time, right? Mm. I know. I know some were sort of famously burned before you went to school. And those are not the ones I'm talking about. But does giving yourself the freedom to keep a diary like that does that influence the pro? And I'm not talking about the subject matter. I'm not talking about mm. taking notes from your own life. I'm literally talking about the physical craft of story and sort of identifying, you know, the pinch points, the before and after, the, the moments that you get in a story that make it interesting. Like, is that part of it for you? Oh, look, writing a diary, is that's how I learned to write. Okay. okay. It's a practice.
1: I still keep one and I write on it every day, in the morning and in the evening, usually twice. And it's a great pleasure to me. I mean, I, people talk about journaling and I, and I often think, I don't know what they mean by that. I, I think that um, to me a diary is an, a lifelong form of, of, of practice. And you just write, you might be just writing about otherwise boring daily domestic events or things you saw in the street. But the thing about writing a diary, if you enjoy writing, that's where you sort of use your your, your kind of linguistic skills and prep, yeah. you've got raw material.
0: There's mm-hmm. endless
1: amounts of that to use. And you can try writing something this way or you can try writing it that way. And so you do a lot of observation because you want to have something to say at the end of the day or something to record. And, and writing a diary is, for me anyway, uh, a great um, freedom. I, I like the, my diary writing, I like it better than anything else I do because it's free. It, it's not for a deadline. I'm just doing it purely for pleasure and just for the pleasure of pushing a pen across the page. And all those years of observation. Yeah, right. that's another thing, especially in this book. There's a couple of scenes in this book that are composed almost entirely of things out of my notebook, which I, I used to, I still have a notebook. I don't use it so much anymore, but I never went anywhere without a notebook and a pen. I write, often write down the way people speak. You know, I just hear somebody's turn a phrase and it's not what they say so much. It's just the way they they put words together or, or, or their sort of little little trumpeting um, piece of rhetoric and in daily life. And, and I make a note of lots of those and they really come in handy when you're writing a novel. If You've got this storehouse of detail that you've been collecting for years and it gives up its treasures at the moment when you need to open it up.
0: That's such a great image. But you also kept a separate diary for the book that ultimately became House of Grief, which is the nonfiction, some might call it true crime. I think it's a little more complicated than that. It's not just the recounting of a crime and a trial. There's, I wouldn't call it true crime. Yeah, yeah, there's so much happening in this book. And both the case and the retrial happened over seven years. You're in the courtroom the whole time. I knew nothing about this case until I read This House of Grief. So would you give listeners a quick synopsis? This is a shocking case, honestly. It's the best way to describe it. shocking case that happened in Australia. Yeah,
1: I can briefly sum it up. Uh, A man and his wife lived in a small town uh, in the country outside Melbourne. They had three little boys. And and he was uh, just an ordinary working guy. worked I think at that point he was a window cleaner. They were trying to build themselves a bigger house and they hired this guy to pour a concrete slab for their new house. And the wife took up with this guy or took a fancy to him and she basically decided she didn't want the marriage to go and so she terminated it and said to her husband, I want you to move out. You can see the kids anytime you like and all I want is uh, the better of the two cars. They had two cars. Pretty soon, you know, she's to be seen going around the, with the new guy who's driving the better of the two cars that came from the couple. So I'm not sure how much time passed, but it was Father's Day and on Father's Day he took, the man's name is Robert Farquharson, he took his kids out for the day to the nearby town and on the way back after dark he was bringing them home to their mother. They drove along a certain stretch of road Besides which there was a, a very, very deep hole filled with rainwater. It was filled to the brim. And as his car came down a hill, it swerved across oncoming traffic, through the fence, and it went into this dam, and it sank to the bottom. He got out and managed to escape the car, but the car with the children in it went to the bottom, and they were drowned. And they were little. They were little. The littlest one was only two Right. And the others were, you know, like going upwards from there. Right. Three of them. And he hitched a ride back to town and there were two, two guys picked him up, two young guys, and he, he was all drooping and covered with slime because he'd been in this water. And they said, what's the matter? He said, oh, I've put my car into the dam and my kids are in it. Take me to my wife. And, and they would say, what are you, crazy? Let's get into the water and try and get the kids out. He said, no, no, it's too late. Take me, take me back to town. So those two poor guys who will probably never get over this took him back to town to his wife, and you know everything developed from there. And he was he wasn't charged until about three months later. It was obviously going to be a difficult case to to prove. And so the the uh, hearings, there was a trial. He was found guilty. He appealed. He, uh, he was found had a second trial. Was found guilty again. Then he tried to appeal again. Tried to go to the high court. They wouldn't hear it. So now and he only got 33 years and he's in jail now. There is one very crucial factor in the trial is trials. It, it, during the first trial, his wife uh, believed in him. His, his wife swore black and blue that he would not have killed the boys, that he loved the boys. And then by the time the second trial comes up, mm-hmm. she's swung around and she changes her mind. And right. now she's a, a raging figure. She says... Now, I believe that he did do it on purpose, and so she was sort of terrifying as a witness. She was filled with such shocking rage and grief, and it it was very hard to see what she suffered in court and what he suffered. It was an enormously painful story, but... Very, very moving.
0: It's interesting to me, too, as I was reading how you were struggling with the information that was not just being presented in court, but you were watching the jurors. You were certainly watching, you know, family members in the venue. And you're interacting with people. I mean, this was a very big case in Australia, and so you'd be out on the street, or you'd be with friends. And every this is the kind of thing that everyone has an opinion about. Yes. And you found yourself occasionally puzzling through how you felt about things, or also feeling like you needed to defend someone. Whether it it could be anyone. I mean, there were times where you felt like a witness had been treated, you know, not well or had not comported themselves. So I mean, you were watching every single. Detail. Yeah. For seven years. Yeah. That's a really long time.
1: It's a really long time. Bear in mind that there would be the seven years, there would be one hearing per year. Right. A couple of months each year. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't write the thing, of course, until it was over. And so I thought, my God, this is never going to end. And I'll, I'll be stuck in this story for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. It, it was very grueling. I desperately wanted him not to be guilty Okay, because it's just unbearable to me to think that someone would kill his children. It was suggested in one of the very late, latest of the hearings that it might have been a failed suicide attempt. That did not come up until right near the very end when he was trying to go to the hot court, and he was enraged that his counsel put that forward. He was he sat there shaking his head. He did not want people to connect him with the idea of suicide. And it, it interested me greatly that it didn't come up and, until right near the end when they were desperate. I tried to hard, and this is what I want the reader to do in this book, is to come with me into the court and look at the people as I did and and get, if I can convey to them, the effect that looking at those people had on me about whether he was guilty or not mm-hmm. or um, just, just the kind of – Swinging this way and that—that that happens in a, in a long trial, which is very—I think would be very hard to convey if I'd written it with a sort of a god's-eye third-person account. Which it you never know, occurred to me. I suppose I, I should do that because that's the—you know—one classic way that people tell tell these stories. But I, I, I just wanted people to come in there with me and look at it with me, and and kind of feel it with me. I think that's kind of worked in the book, judging by what people have said to me about
0: it. I was really sort of charting my response as I was reading it, because again, I didn't know anything about this case until I started reading the book. I had read The Spare Room, which was another one of your novels that was published in the States, and I'd read The Children's Book. I had not yet read Monkey Grip. There are a couple of things that carry through your work regardless of, you know, whether we call it fiction or nonfiction or rep- reportage or what have you. You are so remarkably honest <laughs> And you don't let your characters get away with anything. But you also, you leave some things in in House of Grief that some of the writers might have taken out or kept to themselves or only shared over the dinner table. And I thought that was really an interesting way of staying in the story, but not taking it over. It never ever became about you. I mean, you quote Janet Malcolm a couple of times in the book too. And it's clear that she's a massive. And it's been a minute since I've read The Journalist and the Murderer, but I've, you know, I've read it a couple of times. And so seeing sort of her influence on you and watching you sort of take a step back and say, well, you know, at one point you felt like you had to defend him to a friend who was like, well, you're just making excuses. And you're like, well, actually the dude has had kind of a terrible life. And he's not a monster. And yet people are saying, well, he's a monster. And you just come back and say, well, it's because our brains can't process what he's done.
1: Yes, I think that's true. I think people, some people feel angered by the book. You know, how dare you poke your nose into other people's business in this intimate way? Or actually, not not many people said that, not reviewers, but, you know, people who called into radio <laughs> programs like, right. yeah, that yeah. Things like that. One person, at least one person said, I'm not going to read this book because I know that nowhere in this book does she say that he's a monster. And it's true. I don't say he's a monster because I don't think he's a monster. I think he's a person who, and this is why, if he were a monster, I wouldn't be interested in writing about him. What I'm interested in is people who who seem to be quite ordinary and they're not, you know, psychopaths and they're not the murdering type, whatever that is, but, but the, the events of their lives push them past the thing in themselves that enables the rest of us to endure our bad fortune, and they push through that, or their foot goes through the floor in a moment of crazy feeling, and they do something irreparable right. that can never, never be mended. And that's what you see when you go into a court and look at the person in the dock. You see or an accused person. You see somebody who is is bro- broken, not not someone who's defiantly sitting there saying, "Well, she deserved it." You know, it wasn't. It's not like that. It's it's a person who's done the worst thing that you can think of. And and I mean, who knows what you feel like the next day when you've done something as terrible as that. You've broken through that thing that most of us remain contained in. I don't know what it is, but some ability to endure, endure pain without destroying everything
0: around them. Watching you wrestle with sort of what's vengeance, what's justice, what does fear make people do? I mean, this guy was wildly isolated after his marriage breaks up. It sounds like he was a little isolated and lonely in the marriage, too, honestly. And again, none of us is making excuses... I wouldn't define him as a monster. I would define his behavior as being monstrous. Yes. Yes. He committed a monstrous
1: deed, but I don't think he's a monster.
0: But I think there are also levels of... We tend to, like, grab words really quickly and just slap a label on because it's shorthand. And watching people wrestle with language throughout this house of grief was wild because, again... I had moments where I was like, ugh, this guy, he absolutely, absolutely, without a doubt, he did this. This is gross. Like, this is, he is Kali, destroyer of worlds, right? And then I had moments where I thought, well, maybe. And then, no, I kept coming back to the fact I couldn't, I really couldn't get beyond the fact that he had done something terrible. And then then there were all of these sort of weird moments around it and you, I'm not gonna spoil the plot points, but I had a very emotional response to a thing that I knew nothing about, I think is what I'm trying to get to, it was, it was interesting. It was really interesting for me reading the book and going, huh, I have a lot of feelings about this and I know nothing about these people or this case or anything beyond what you're telling me on page. The people that are in the story are are the kind of people that, that we know.
1: Uh, it's not as if they're a sort of weird tribe on the outskirts of civilization. They're, they're you new know, people who go to the supermarket or they try to build a house or they pour a concrete slab and put the new house on it or they they, they, they go to the supermarket with the children and get an ice cream. I mean, it's the awfulness. that. One of the questions that I t- tried to think about was people kept saying in his defence, but he loved those boys. I thought about that a lot. And I thought when you love somebody, it goes right into the very darkest part of you, in into the depths of you that you don't understand. And and you there are these drives that are in there in the dark. And love and disappointed love, rejection in love, it drives people round the twist. I think. To say that because you love someone means you wouldn't want to kill them seems to me. I mean, in my experience, I wanted to kill people I've loved quite a lot, and 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 mm-hmm. by, you know, by some good fortune, I've never done it. Mm-hmm. But I've never picked up a weapon or you know got that close. But what comes out of you under the power of love is, is my. It, it doesn't. I mean, romantic love just doesn't kind of touch the sides here. This is love of deep, brutal, dark love dependency things that when they're violated, you you can't answer for what might happen. And I think that's kind of stuff Freud talks about, and I found that very useful.
0: That was one of the things I definitely sort of every time someone either on Farkerson's family or, you know, your reporting turned up moments where people would say, oh, no, 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 he loved me at <laughs> People justify a lot of things with love. So uh-huh. that really, that argument just has never carried weight with me. No, it, it just is, absolutely not, never has. water. It yeah. Isn't. Yeah. And it was wild to me how heavily people leaned on that from multiple points of yeah. view. It wasn't just, you know, and, and I kept thinking, wait, step back for two seconds, really step back for two seconds. Mm. That is an extraordinary thing to say that, you know, children were murdered at the hands of a parent mm. who loved them unconditionally. It's like, well, actually.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's, true. that's hard for us to bear. I mean, these are, yeah, right? are realisations, aren't they, about, about humans and and what we're like and what we're capable of and how it seems to me that there's this darkness exists in all of us. Yeah. In many of us it, it, it doesn't come out. Mm-hmm. What life hands us doesn't cause all our systems to kind of break down right but there are some people who who suffer in ways that make them commit appalling crimes and they have to go to jail I mean you can't have people like that walking around the street
0: yeah I'm to let them get started on that in this particular case too I mean and you've talked about this in other interviews about your work in general but knowing that the family is sort of the place where everything starts yeah, right. So I and I want to come back to this. And I know I mentioned it earlier in the show, but this idea that somehow if you're writing about a domestic scene, it can't be epic, and it can't be ambitious. And it's just like, well, here's a pile of dirty dishes. And, you know, we're just going to, you know, follow along as someone quietly has a nervous breakdown, da, 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 when in fact, actually, it is kind of the story of the world, right? Like, it just happens that we're in a kitchen. And there's this idea that women only write these tiny, tiny books.
1: I know that's what people said to me for ages. A small canvas, they used to say. Your book was a small canvas. You know, when you were talking just now, I suddenly remembered a scene in a fantastic British TV movie I saw recently. I think it was called Marriage. Anyway, that was the actress Nicola Walker, and she her father was dependent on her in an enraging way. And there's a scene in it which was like in real time, where you see him standing by the fridge, commanding, demandingly waiting for her to make him a sandwich. The film follows the making of the sandwich, every detail. She goes to the fridge, gets the stuff, gets the bread out of the pack, it's all in one big shot, she makes the sandwich. And the whole time she's making the sandwich, you're thinking, she's almost screaming with repressed rage. Right. And it goes into and she doesn't make it brutally, but something about the making of the sandwich, it's almost like it's a poison sandwich. But it's a most astonishing scene. I, I watched it with my mouth hanging open. I thought, "My God, look what they're doing! They're doing this in real time, and it's unbearable."
0: I mean, again, this this idea that you know a guy like Farquharson just is suddenly emerges out of nowhere. And I'm not saying that his family is necessarily responsible. I'm mm. simply saying that we can't ignore that he came from some place. He came yes. from something, you know, and he didn't just walk out of the woods and suddenly be a person. This is not, you know? no. and if we're not looking at these pieces, right. And the jurors, they all have families, the judges, the lawyers, all, you have family, like the idea that somehow this person can act independently of everything in the world around him. It's a little bit of a fairy tale to say that yeah. there isn't, you know, all of these different pieces, you know. It's ultimately the end of his family unit, as he knows it, the wife and the three boys, that makes him do something unspeakable.
1: Well, there is a theme that runs through the book, when well, I say a theme, a series mm-hmm. of events. Uh, mm-hmm. that after, after the marriage breakup, he goes to see a therapist. I mean, you know, right. under pressure because, mm-hmm. I mean, he's a country bloke in Australia and they're the hardest people in the world to get to, to, to go and talk to someone. And uh, that man gave evidence in court and he spoke about, how Farquharson behaved and and you know the sort of things that they said to each other. And I was sort of stunned by the the shallowness of the conversations that he reported. Okay, so he's just a psychologist in the bush. Right. And he, you know, a, a person of goodwill. And somehow nobody nobody perceived the depth at to which Robert Farquharson was feeling this breakdown. Mm-hmm. You know, he kept saying, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, no, it doesn't. No, I'm okay. You know, nobody seemed to be aware that, that he was building up this terrible head of steam. It didn't occur to anybody. Well, it wouldn't, I suppose. And yet people suffer, suffer so much and, uh, in, their, in their family torments. I just kept, kept thinking, why well, couldn't this guy have used his imagination a bit more while dealing with this sad guy? They were always asking, and people were always saying to him, "Are you taking your medication? Are you taking your medication?" That's one thing that happened. That some tapes were played in the court. They bugged his phone because it was such a strange case. They had to get some, try to get evidence from what he was saying to other people. And again and again, you'd hear that, and you'd hear that. person a friend or a relative would ring up and see how he was, and and they'd always start by saying, "Are you taking your medication?" That would be the first. The first question they ask him, people cling to that idea of medicating
0: our pain. There's an idea of masculinity that goes certainly with an Australian stereotype to a certain extent. And if you're caught up in that and if you're defining yourself in those terms, right, not even not even necessarily consciously defining Mm. yourself Mm. in those terms. And yet, you know, your wife throws you out. And what does that mean for you as a man? right? Many men are not great about talking about their feelings anyway. So you're talking about this doctor and I'm like, I can imagine these two dudes sitting in a room, not really having a good go of it, trying to get each other to talk. I realize it's the doctor's job, but at the same time, like, how do you get someone to talk who doesn't want to Mm. talk Mm. or doesn't think there's a problem or doesn't think he's the problem? You can sort of see the circles. Yeah. That people so what, are
1: driving themselves. That at. Part of the story was very painful to me. I felt so sad for everybody. Mm-hmm. It's a terribly painful story. As you say, he was lonely. There were so many details in the story where his loneliness is clear. Mm-hmm. His loneliness between when his wife broke up the marriage and and when he drove into the dam. Just, I mean, there were all these hints given that he was actually thinking of driving into a truck. I mean, he actually told one of his friends that. And his friends said, oh, bullshit, mate, you know, you don't do something like that. I mean, that people don't dare to go into each other's
0: darkness. You've told other people, too, that by the time everything was over, as you said, you needed to wait until all of the appeals played out and everything. You needed as much of the material before you could sit down to write. And certainly if you're writing something as a trial is going on, I mean, it becomes a very different book. But you've also described yourself as being traumatized. At the mm. end of it, as you sat down to write, mm. and I'm wondering if you would be willing to talk about that a little bit. I mean, we've yeah. hinted at some of the material. It is very dark material, but it wasn't just the material that you were having a response to.
1: Well, you see, all throughout the trial, I did. I was writing. I would write something every day after the hearing, each hearing. So I had a lot of material to work with by the time I got to the end and had to start writing, but. But I, see, I live with my right next door and my daughter and her family. Right. And her husband and their three kids. And the kids were quite small at the time. The two, two, there were two of them who were little boys. And, you know, they were at the age where they liked to come sit on my knee. And uh, I'd get home from the court, sort of stuck with horror at what I'd been listening to. And they'd run run to me and want to cuddle me and sit on the couch and sit on my knee. And, and, you know, they were the two of them were the age of two of. Of the dead boys, and, and I, I sort of felt that I would contaminate them. It was mm-hmm. a weird, weird kind of superstitious feeling, as, as if the, the horror of the court would kind of stick to me on the way home, and and it'd come off on them. And, I, and it didn't. I mean, obviously it didn't. But that's what I mean by traumatized—that you, you carry that story like that around. And I sit with the journalists sometimes, and, and I admire the journalists. They've got a kind of toughness that I, I hadn't got because I'm not, you know, I'm never trained, I've never been in a newsroom, I've never been a, a real journalist. I didn't have to come up with with anything written. I mean, they had to mm-hmm. go away at the end of each day and, and file some copy, but but I just had, I just could h- hang on for seven years and the whole thing festering away. At the end, I, I ran into one of those journalists whom I hadn't seen since the trial. And some, mm-hmm. some years later, I ran into him and I thought, oh, this film... Phil- and I just went say hello and he waved and I, I thought that would be the end of it but he came running towards me and he plonked down in the seat next to me and said, how did you pull up after the Farquharson trial? And I suddenly thought, my oh God, he, this is like two years later and I thought, oh, I don't think I pulled up all that well. It was when he asked me the question that I started thinking about it and I said, oh, no, not, not so good. How about you? And he he just blurted out that he'd had a kind of crack up, and had had to leave his job. And oh and wow! So it was when he kind of admitted that to me, or, or said, told it to me, that i I realised that we were all freaked out by it, by the just the horror of the story and the pain. So it was a relief to me that he said that, and I probably would never have even confessed it to my if he hadn't told me that that's what he was feeling.
0: That's really interesting to hear you say you might not have thought about it if someone hadn't asked you because, I mean, having read the book, it's clear you're struggling. It's it's clear that you are wrestling with things where you're like, I can't even believe. I. And this is the thing that I do appreciate you as the narrator of this book where you're saying, I can't even believe I'm thinking about this. I can't even believe that i'm worried about x y or z and again i'm just staying away from spoilers but there were some moments where my eyes got really big i was like oh she left that in okay um i'm not sure i would have been as generous i don't know if that's because i was raised in boston we tend to stand on hills and smite people that's what we do for fun I, i get a little judgy about people who make bad decisions and i'm not making light of this story at all it's just i'm making light of myself as a reader." And because, you know, you put your work out into the world and reader brings half of the book, you know, with yeah. whatever their yeah. experience is. So watching you be willing to play this out on the page was really, it was fascinating. It was really fascinating and a really sort of satisfying reading experience for me. And again, it's not, it's not a case I knew anything about. I know very mm-hmm. little about the Australian court system, yeah. but I recognize the characters. I recognize you As a narrator, I recognize the families, the members of the families, the various people who roll through this book, the same way that I can recognize the characters in the children's Bach and Monkey Grip. Mm -hmm. I recognize them for being their own people and having their own impressions of the world and making their own decisions. And you do it with dialogue and you do it with these details. You just get these details that go from being very specific too wildly universal in the span of very few words.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you. I want to write in such a way that there's room for the reader to come in. Yeah. That's partly why I, I try and and have as, as do it in as few words as possible. I don't want to write passages of with lots of flourishes and opinions. I I, I just want to make room for the reader to come in and feel things. Yeah. On their own account, so I'm glad that the characters work like that. I suppose they are pretty sort of archetypal, i not they? I mean, when you're talking about a family, you've got a lot of archetypes moving around there.
0: Archetypal, yes, but more just fully human to me. I will say this to you: the ending felt inevitable to me, and I'm I st- it still felt slightly surprising, even though because I think and I think I it was. Maybe just me thinking, oh, oh, and actually, when, when we turn off the recording, I am going to tell you exactly what I'm referring okay. to. I was sad. I was sad at that person's decision. I was like, oh, okay.
1: No one could say it had a happy ending. I mean, I don't see it as a happy ending. I see it as a oh. resolution. But um, an older writer, a woman uh, who I uh, admired in life very much, a Jessica Anderson. Yeah. She said to me just casually one day that she thought that it was a conservative book. She said, And she said, hmm? she said that conser- uh, women write, tend to write a conservative book when their daughter is a teenager. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. But hmm. I went and kind of checked if other
0: people had done it. Huh. But it was an interesting remark. It is an interesting remark. We are going to let that hang in the air, though, so people can think about it and then go read the children's book. I don't need happy endings. It did feel like a resolution, but it also felt very true Mm. to the characters and the story and what they were wrestling with. It was a good experience for me as a reader to have these books in tandem. I think some folks may gravitate towards one or the other simply because they say, well, I read nonfiction, I read fiction. I... I'm hoping people come to both. I do think you can see a through line of you. Character is everything for you, I I feel. I mean, it's sort of like you love lovely sentences too, but you need the character to sort of grab onto and then the lovely sentences come. Whereas some writers are just like, no, no, I need the lovely sentences first and then we can figure out the rest of it. <laughs> and I just, I think you need the people first. Whether yes. they're sitting in front of you or you're sort of conjuring them, well, fingers crossed that we get people to pick them both up because I think I think as a pair, I think they work. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm really very pleasantly surprised to see that they do work as a pair. I wouldn't have crossed
1: my mind that they would. Have. So this has been very interesting for me. Thank
0: you. Good, good, good. I'm glad to hear it, Helen Garner. Thank you so much for joining us on Port over both the children's Bach. And his House of Grief are out now, and Monkey Grip comes in early 2024. And they have a really fantastic sort of look across the three of them. I'm so pleased. Anyway, thank you again. This was great. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes and Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.